All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I just ask for your help this morning. These are, these are big truths to comprehend and to discern. Lord, I pray for help for me in, in just communicating this, or that the words I say would be clear. Um, and God, give us this, um, just a seriousness about your gospel, um, that this is not a message to be messed with. It is not a message to be ignored. It's not a, a message we can just look at and walk away from. Um, so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us a healthy fear of you as we go through this study. And, Lord, that that is what this study would, would result in. Just a clear view of who you are and, and in light of who we are with our sin nature. And, God, as we talk about the context of cultural Christianity that, that plagues um, this city that plagues this country. Father, we pray that your gospel would go out in clarity. That it would challenge many. And for my brothers and sisters here, that they would have opportunities for friends, loved ones, family members in their lives to, to clearly convey this gospel message and, and hope that you would save many, Lord. This is our prayer this morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, great. We've been going through Cultural Christian series for a few months now. We're getting close to wrapping it up. Um, when are we done with it? Uh, I think March. We'll, we'll go through February. The last couple of weeks will be kind of a wrap-up. So we're getting close to um, finalizing the series. And, you know, the first half, we, we talked a lot about cultural Christianity, um, some of the doctrines that they believe. Um, we talked about the church, how it fosters Christianity in ways uh, through worship or things like holiday services. Now we're focusing in on the gospel. Um, it's, it's still very much part of this cultural Christianity series, but if we're talking so much about, man, they're missing the gospel, they're missing the gospel, there's a gospel disconnect. I wanted to make sure that we all had a good refresher of, well, what is the gospel? And as I mentioned last week, not just a, you know, a simple five-finger, you know, hey, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. Um, we wanted to go a little bit deeper here into the gospel of what its power and message is. It was a reminder last week that the gospel is very powerful. Um, and then we're going to go into some other facets of the, of the gospel in the next few weeks. So just by way of recap, we talked about how a cultural Christian, when they think of Christianity, specifically to themselves, what makes them a Christian... Uh, a lot of these things come up and that it really rests upon a foundation of three kind of foundations to a cultural Christian. They're a Christian because of works, right? They grew up in the church. They, they go to church every now and then. They, they said a prayer. They're baptized when they're young. They give money. Their dad was a pastor. There's generational Christianity within their family. So naturally, they're a Christian. We talked about morality. Morality is probably the biggest one, right? I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. You know, I'm, I'm a decent person. Uh, I'm better than most. You know, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like my neighbors across the street that party every night. Uh, I'm a good person. God sees that. Uh, and I hate evil, right? I, I see what's going out on in the world and it saddens me and I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I have good morals. Uh, civic religion. They think themselves as a Christian because they just believe in God. Just a big picture of God. I, I look at the dollar bill and, and God, God we trust. I, I trust in God. Uh, I'm an American, right? 
uh, and I'm conservative in my values. So these are kind of the foundations of, of what a cultural Christian would be holding on to when it comes to why they're a Christian and why they're saved. When we talked about the good news, we, we hear the good news, uh, Evangelion, as it's described in the scriptures, right? That all of us came to faith by hearing this good news. So the good question was, well, to a cultural Christian, what, what, what is the good news to them? And it would most likely rest in something like this. Well, the good news is I can be in heaven with my loved ones and family members. The good news is it's pretty easy. I just have to say a prayer, which I did when I was eight. Um, the good news is that Jesus loves me, that Jesus has a good plan for my life. The good news is that he wants to help me. He can help me financially. He can help me with, you know, hard friendships and happiness, right? The good news is that if I become a Christian, it's going to lead to joy and happiness, which that is true. So this is an interesting way to look at what's going on in a cultural Christian's head compared to a Jesus-following Christian, right? Because to a Jesus-following Christian, the good news to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what's circulating around in our mind. This is what got you saved. It's this whole message of Jesus Christ. So the Christian thinks of the gospel as uh, how they were saved and, and what functions as a Christian day-to-day -day for them. The cultural Christian rests on works, morality, civic religion, um, and we, we, we discuss that these are not equal. They're two different Gospels. So Paul in Galatians talks about this very issue, that if you preach anything outside of the Gospel that I taught you, it's not a Gospel at all. So then we talked about how cultural Christianity needs to be evangelized. It's a whole different religion. And that sounds weird, right? Because religions, we're used to common religions, Mormonism, right? Muslim, Christian, Jewish. Well, cultural Christianity is, is a religion because it's a different gospel. And it is, a, it is a big religion here in America and here in Spokane. And the interesting thing here is, uh, just to point out, when, when the Christian's thinking of the gospel, we're, we're, we're thinking of God. We should be thinking of God, Right? He's the author and perfecter of our, of our faith. He's the creator. He's our, our master. We're his doulos, his slave, as it says in Scripture. Cultural Christians thinking of their self. If you really break these down, it's really just self. I can make myself better, right? I can make myself more righteous. So then we said that the problem really is a gospel disconnect. So that's why we're, we're, we're really diving into the gospel in these few weeks is because we want to make sure there's a clear understanding of what the gospel is, what it does. Um, so we're going through gospel power message. We did part one last week. This week we're finishing up on part two. And then next week we're going to talk about – so the, this left side, power messages, we're, we're talking about holistically what is the message of the gospel. That's what we've been dissecting. What is its message? Why is it powerful? Next week, we're going to talk into then kind of how does it work? What does the gospel do? Well, we know it, it, it has the power to save, but how? So we're going to focus in on the gospel calling, the conversion of a sinner to a saint and what that looks like biblically. And then we'll end on assurance and mornings. The gospel also brings with it assurance of faith, right? But it also brings warnings as well. So these are the, the, the three things we're going to look at. We had to do two parts of Power Messages because it was pretty, pretty lengthy. We'll dive in here. Before we start, one thing I thought was interesting when I was reading through Galatians was 
Um, this is nothing new, right? We always run into heresy, right? We'll, we'll, we'll see heresies uh, in history. We'll study them or we'll look into just the way people think. Century over century, generation over generation. And you hear that phrase, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Well, I was thinking about cultural Christianity and I was like, man, th- this was back in Paul's day in a sense. And here's how. So a Judaizer, Judaizer, right? You guys know what Judaizers are? So when Christianity stemmed up, Christ ascended. He left to the uh, disciples to start the churches. So these churches are being planted. The message of Christianity is going out. The message of the gospel is going out. The Christian church is formed. It's growing, right? Well, Judaizer is is someone who grew up Jewish under the law and everything that, that they taught. But what happened was, is it was kind of a 50-50 blend. So it was a Jew who accepted Christ as the Messiah. They, they, they heard this good news of the gospel that was new, and they said, yes, okay, Jesus is my Messiah. But they brought in with them the works of the law that they were so used to. These are the people Paul was combating in Galatians and, and all throughout the New Testament. So they're Jews who are like, I'm in the Christian church now. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. We're brothers now, but you need to be circumcised. Are you circumcised? Oh, you're not? Well, you need to be. Because that's what Jesus would want. So what's happening is they're bringing in works. They're bringing in these things that they were used to into the Christian message. And that's why Paul's like, no, this is a different gospel. So as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, man, this is, this is similar to cultural Christianity today. We're, we're affirming Jesus. We're saying, I believe Jesus. I believe in Jesus. But... I got to bring this in with me, but I got to do this or, but I'm, I don't have to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And that then distorts the gospel. So just an interesting thing I wanted to point out there. Okay. So last week we talked about the gospel is, we talked about it's scandalous, right? A powerful word, but we talked about it's scandalous. It's not a message that's going to be welcomed by natural man. The Bible tells us natural man is not going to really want to hear this message because it goes against everything that natural man believes when it comes to relativism, pluralism, humanism, right? Man wants to worship himself. Man doesn't want absolute truth. They don't want to be told, well, this is truth. And if you disagree with it, you're wrong and the Bible's right. So it's a scandalous message. We talked about how powerful that the gospel message is the only message that saves. It's the only message that can save. And then we talk about how it's a message for all people. It's to go out to all nations. Then we said the gospel is a message about God. The gospel is not a message about man as its central focus. God is the central focus of the gospel message. And we said, well, we kind of broke that down. Well, God is holy, right? God was never created. He's eternal. He's master. He has all the authority. Then we talked about sin entering in the world, about how God created creatures. He created humanity, and we know what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. But then we further broke down, well, then what is sin? How does God look at sin? Right? And we said that there's a holy war going on with sin and God. That sin is so severe in God's sight that he hates it. He can't be around it. And we talked about how the scriptures say that sinners are enemies of God. And then we talk about what sin does to us, that it's a barrier, right? Not just a physical barrier. Sin separates man from God. So there's a physical barrier there. 
but it also does something inside of us. So we talked about what's known as total depravity last week, that sin does not allow man to even desire God, to desire righteousness, to desire holiness. That natural man is not only not wanting to do that, but is unable or uh, unable to do that because there's a heart problem, right? Since the curse of sin came into the world, man is naturally born with a hardened heart that cannot discern spiritual things nor want it. And that's why regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration, where God brings someone to life to be able to see his beauty and holiness is such a crucial doctrine because that's where God is then replacing this hardened heart of stone with a fleshly heart that lives and beats and breathes. And then it can see Jesus and the gospel message as right, as perfect, precious. Okay? So this is everything we went over last week. Now we're, we could say this is the bad news, right? This is the dark veil that you need when presenting the gospel message. We need to hit on these points. We need to talk about sin. We need to talk about the holy war going on, of God's disdain for sin. We need to talk about all of these things. We need to talk about God's holiness. And now we're going to get into the good news, the hope that we have in light of all this. Because if we look at all this top part, then who can be saved? Right? And the scriptures say that, right? Well, well, who can be saved then? If this is true, Dave, if you're telling me that, that you know, man from birth is depraved, that they don't even want God, they, they have nothing to do with God, then who can be saved? Well, this is the good news of the gospel that we're going to go through this morning. So the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ. First point, he's a qualified redeemer. Jesus Christ is a qualified redeemer. John 1.14 and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. Romans 3.25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. So again, as we looked at all this bad news and how rebellion makes us enemies of God, it sets us apart from him physically and spiritually. Now we got this good news, right? And this word qualified is a very important word as it takes us deeper into our understanding of the gospel. Now, without looking into your notes further, if you have already, that's totally fine. Just want to engage a little bit here with this idea. What are your initial thoughts on what makes Jesus a qualified redeemer? What are some points to hit on that makes him qualified? He's sinless. He's sinless. Yeah, perfect. Holy man. Yeah. Holy man. Fills the prophecies about the Messiah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Filled every prophecy, right? What else? Also fully God. Also fully God. But Nathan said fully man. Yeah. So how can that be? <laughs> um, yeah, so this the power of this qualification really lies within these two natures. And it's something interesting to really think about. Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. We know that from hearing, you know, singing Christmas songs, and we, we, we run into that through some Bible studies. But we really think about that. It's an interesting point because there's a lot of significance to both natures. Both natures had to be there. And that's what we're going to look into here. Fully God. What are some thoughts on why God needed to be fully, Jesus needed to be fully God? What are some points to hit on there that, that just come to mind? Only God can stand before God. Yeah. Like nothing else. In his presence, right? Yeah, nothing else could be our mediator besides God himself. Yeah, only God could stand before God. Go. Yeah. Is your weight of sin 
Yeah, the weight of sin would be too much for anyone to handle but God, yeah. You get that perfection piece of, you know, we talked about all man, every man is a sinner. And like these, they're both saying, it's, it has to have perfection. And that can, we've been told in our talk last week, there's, that can't come from someone who's just man. Right. Right, if that's been told biblically that man is un- <laughs> incapable of doing this, then it needs to be something else, right? It has to be something else. So that's a good point, Kevin. Yeah, so point one here, fully God needed to be able to withstand the power of God's anger and fury towards sin. No mortal man would be, ever be able to absorb God's full wrath. And this is another interesting point to think deep on, God's wrath. You ever think about that much? Scary stuff. Really scary stuff. I mean, honestly, just even going through this lesson this week, I've just been humbled all week of just my sin and, uh, and the beauty of Christ in light of all this. But when you really think about what Christ had to endure, it's pretty, pretty crazy stuff. Uh, Jeremiah 10, I got some scriptures here that talk about God's wrath, the severity of it. Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And the everlasting king, at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Psalm 76, 7 through 9. But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. Any thoughts that you guys have regarding God's wrath? Or maybe a time in your life where this has really hit you hard. Yeah, Jen. Well, it, just, it reminds me of in the Pilgrim's Progress when, when Christian comes up to the um, Mount um, Sinai. And, and then uh, from the scriptures and then how... God told Moses to tell everyone, you don't even come near this place. I mean, anybody that comes or any animal person who comes near here, they will be struck down. And so it's, so yeah, so when you're thinking about your own sin, it's like, well, <laughs> is there anything that can save me? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 38, kind of answers this uh, one of these questions anyway, or it addresses it as why Jesus had to be fully God. It says, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? The answer is, it was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. This answer is kind of a combination of what you all answered earlier, right? That God had to be able to withstand the wrath um, it, it couldn't have been a human because we know humans can't do it. So the second reason he had to be fully God is sin is costly. Right? We talked about that. So if sin is costly, you know, if you think about bartering with people, right? If you're like, hey, you know, I want to get off, you know, this, but we're even in the, in the justice system. Right? Hey, I, wanna, I want these charges dropped. Well, it's not going to just be an easy, okay, they're dropped. 
something's got to give, right? So it's either, you know, you're going to work out a deal. I want, I want this in exchange for that. And it's got to be big. And if you think about how much our sin costs to God, well, this isn't just a, a, a simple little barter, right? I mean, this has to be a pretty precious sacrifice. It's got to be something big. And that's why Jesus Christ had to be God. He had to be infinite in worth. The spotless, precious lamb, right? Uh, and third, deity was required. Deity was required to mediate in God's direct presence. Chase, you talked about this, right? Our mediator must be God to be able to stand in God's presence because no human being can. So these are three, three quick points on why Jesus had to be God. Let's talk about fully man. What are your thoughts there? Why did Jesus have to be fully man? Yeah. Be our representative. Any other things come to mind? Yeah, Kev? Actually, Marissa raised her hand first. It looked like you stole her answer. I don't even know if we're going to say the same thing. Um, Oh, yeah? This will be interesting. Good. Um, But just thinking of the covenant, like essentially flesh and blood in particular was required. And so if God had just mediated, not actually man, the sacrifice. Fulfill God's created covenant, God can't contradict himself or not fulfill his requirements. Which was with man, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you're going to say, Kevin? <laughs> well, similarly, we were reading Leviticus a little bit. Just the sacrificial system, we are so far removed from the priests were probably bloodied all day long. Yeah. Sacrificing for themselves and the people. And we're told in Romans, it's yeah interesting things to think about huh this whole you know fully god fully man nature of jesus christ it's intricate when you first hear it it doesn't make sense it's hard to wrap your mind around it but what's more interesting is when you start dissecting the purpose of it why why did he have to be Man, why did he have to be God? So yes, uh, fully man as Adam, our first human representative, represented all of mankind as a sinner. The Redeemer had to be a human that represented all mankind as a perfect lawkeeper. Right? So you, you hear of Christ being the second Adam, because the first Adam failed. The first Adam brought sin into the world. The second Adam had to bring perfect righteousness, perfect lawkeeping into the world, and it had to be a man. Second point, mankind needs a, a high priest to intercede on their behalf, a human mediator who can speak to the judge and advocate for mankind. Man has to advocate for man, and that's what Jesus' role is as our high priest. So the summary here, um, just like last week, I have these summary statements for each of these big points, just kind of the big idea. To be the savior of the world, it was necessary that Christ be God, and yet it is also true that the justice of God required sin to be punished in the same nature in which it had been committed. Therefore, the one who died had to be a man. It was man who broke God's law, and it was a man who must die. By the way, I almost forgot this again. I forgot it last week. So these three books are kind of what I'm riffing off for this section of the gospel. These, it's a three-book series by Paul Washer. Uh, you can see Gospel's Power Message, uh, Call and True Conversion, and Assurance and Warnings. These are, this is an amazing three-part series on just the gospel. 
it goes into a very deep dive, and every page is very humbling. <laughs> um, and I couldn't put it down. Um, I'll try to get some of these for our bookstore. We don't have any right now, but maybe in the next week or so, I'll, I'll get a few copies. But highly recommend these. These are fantastic. There it is. I didn't forget it this time. Almost did, though. Uh, okay, next. The gospel is a message about Jesus Christ and his cross. What does the gospel tell us about the cross of Christ? What comes to mind? And again, I'm not looking for right answers here. I'm just really curious of like, hey, what pops into your mind right away when you think of the cross of Christ? Hmm? The altar. The altar. The curse of sin. Yeah, the requirement of yeah. Substitution. Substitution. Good. Uh, last week I was talking to a guy and he mentioned the fact that to him the, the cross was symbolism because when Adam and Eve sinned, they took from the tree of life. Mm. And the cross was came from a tree and that's what Jesus died on. Interesting connection there, yeah. I think of it is finished. It is finished, yeah. Yeah, these are all great things. We, we know the cross is, is, is huge in the gospel message, right? It's, it's, it's very, very important to understand what happened at the cross. And these are good things to, to talk to when you're speaking with people who may be cultural Christians, right? To highlight some of these points. Um, first one is the cross-initiated imputation. Imputation. What is it? It's, it's kind of a financial term. And it's, it's taking the, the balance of, of one account and crediting it to another. So on the, Christ, on the cross, Christ took our punishment, right? He took on the full wrath of God, but it didn't stop there. And this is something I missed my first 10 years of being a Christian. I never understood the second half. It was always, you know, I was told Christ died for my sins on the cross. Okay, great. And it kind of ended there. And the second half is very, very crucial. Because it didn't just stop there. Something else happened. Christ died for your sins. He took on God's wrath. But in return, he transferred his righteousness to the sinner. That's incredible. So that's imputation. So the cross initiates this imputation. The cross displayed God's hatred of sin. This is an interesting way to look at the cross. It displays what God thinks about sin. And how severe of a punishment was required to deal with it. The, the cross displayed God's love for his people. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we see God's love poured out in his covenant and his promises to his people. And the cross was provided by God himself. It was always his plan. Uh, Genesis, if you guys have your, your Bibles and you want to go to Genesis 22, there's 14 verses I'm going to read here. I'll give you a sec to flip there, but... This really helps to kind of shine light on this, this truth that the cross was always God's plan. It was provided by God. Genesis 22, chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. All right, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Thoughts on that in regards to Christ and the cross? Anything stand out? Yeah, it's like, what's that? The son was willing. The son was willing, yeah. That's just like one of the weirdest stories. Like, it's so crazy from start to finish. It's <laughs> a crazy story. Like, yeah. Just a wild. And yeah, it's just a super clear picture of the gospel in the wood, the, yeah, the whole thing. God will provide for himself. Yeah. The land. There's that phrase, God will provide for himself. The land. Yeah, God will provide. And, you know, again, something that can be easily overlooked, God will provide. God is the initiator. God is running the show here, right? The gospel message is about God. It's for us to look at what he's doing and what he has done and marvel. It's not about us and what we can do. It's all about God and how he provides. And so um, just an exhortation, I guess, this morning to you, an encouragement when you read the scriptures and you think about the gospel, just marvel, sit back and watch what God does. It's incredible. And it, and it leads to worship. So summary here, on that tree, God blew upon Jesus with the fire of his wrath that melts mountains like well, only Paul Washer can write like this, by the way. <laughs> On that tree, God blew upon Jesus with the fire of his wrath that melts mountains like wax before a flame and like water rushing down a steep slope. For this reason, Christ cried out, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of, my, out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. The Lord Jesus Christ was singled out for adversity from the vast multitude of humanity and every curse written in the law was made to rest upon him. 
As he hung upon the cross, the full measure of divine wrath against the people of God was focused upon him alone, and the full measure of God's anger burned against him. So the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ and his cross. Next, it's a message about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. What comes to mind when you think of his resurrection and the significance? Victory. Victory. Yeah, I like that one. Victory. Power over death. Power over death. And sin. <laughs> There's no bonus points here. Yes, okay? You only get 100. <laughs> Victory over death and sin, yes. Hope. Hope. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah, the victory of peace. Uh, God was satisfied. Yes. He raised it. It's like it doesn't have to be done again. Yes. I think another overlooked point, right? God was satisfied. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a sec, but yeah, I mean, there is no more that needs to be done. And that's something we need to be told daily, right? still struggle with that. Like, man, when is God going to get to the point with me where he just gives up? Because I just don't seem to get it. And that's not the gospel. So the first point here on the resurrection, the resurrection affirmed that Christ was the true son of God, right? The resurrection confirmed that Jesus is everything he said he was. Lord of all. The true Messiah. The resurrection was the stamp that affirmed that. Second point here, the resurrection affirms that Christ and believers are raised to new life and will never die again as well. So that is our assurance. If Christ raised from the grave, so will we. That's good news. And the resurrection is proof that God accepted Christ's atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. Kevin, just like you were saying, it's proof that God was appeased. He was pleased with what was done. For sin, and there's no more that needs to be done. So the summary here, the resurrection of Jesus is that one great and invincible proof of who he is and what he has accomplished on behalf of his people. So the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ's resurrection. And it's a message about Jesus Christ and his ascension. So what comes to mind now when we think of his ascension? The most overlooked aspect. Yes, fair. Yes, Kel. Well, I always just remind me that that we do have a mediator that is interceding for us because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, so he's lifted in both of his ascension, that he didn't have that. Yes. That's like the final part, too, is that the access to Jesus. Yes, and this is huge. And Darcy, of course, being a counselor, this is the most critical part that we, we miss, right? When it comes to dealing with our daily troubles. We have a high priest. We have someone interceding for us. This morning, Christ is interceding on your behalf. Wow. That's crazy to think, right? It is overlooked, and it's something that we need to be looking at over and over and over. The scriptures affirm that Christ ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection, right? But his ascension placed him at the right hand of God. So he's sitting at the right hand of God, but he's not just sitting there, right, idle. He's doing something. 
and what he's doing <laughs> has great significance and impact on us. He's interceding on our behalf. So we talk about this word intercession or interceding. What does it mean? What do you think it means? Hmm? Go between? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. What else? other things come to mind? Intercession? Well, he's praying on our behalf. Yeah. Because we don't even know how to offer prayer. Yeah. So this brings up an interesting point. I probably shouldn't go, but I'm going to go here. So why do Catholics pray to Mary and the saints? Right? When you have Jesus Christ, your high priest, sitting at the right hand of the Father, that's what he's there for. Right? That's the whole point. Like, being someone who is interceding on our behalf, he's sitting right there with God the Father. We don't need to pray to other people. We pray to Jesus Christ. And it just baffles me because it's so sad to me how lost even that point can get when your, your thought process is, well, no, we need to pray to Mother Mary because Jesus is still inaccessible because he's so holy. But his mother will sympathize with us, right? Mother Mary knows us. And, and, and to try to place... What kind of idolatry is that? I'm getting on the high horse now, but I guess it. So, what level of idolatry are we looking at when, when you literally cast Christ aside and say, well, I'm going to pray to Mother Mary because she was a mother and she's more sympathetic. She'll be more sympathetic towards me because she was towards Jesus because any mom is. What kind of blasphemy? When you have Jesus Christ, who is the most sympathetic, who under Hebrews talks about this, right? He understands what you're going through. He went through it. Man, Satan is real, alive, and he is good at what he does, right? At twisting things. <clears throat> um, okay, so this is a huge point. It is overlooked, Darcy. I'm glad you brought that up. It's mind-blowing to think about the fact that Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's talking about you. That when you're praying to him, he's bringing those prayers to the Father, the holy God, the creator of the universe. Uh, two scriptures here, Matthew 10, 32 through 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Wow. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Hebrews 10, 11 through 22. And every high priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water.
please highlight or write down Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19. Verse 19 is what we probably need to read every single day. Right? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Full assurance knowing that what Christ did on the cross is done. That he resurrected. He pleased God with his sacrifice. And now he's sitting at the right hand and he's talking about you. Yes, Kevin. I'm just thinking about everything you're talking about, even like, yeah, praying to someone else. We don't think about the old system enough, but that curtain, right, was separated people from God. They could never access God. But now with Christ, like, we can call God Father mm-hmm. and talk to God personally without being smoked down by his wrath, like you're just talking about. Like, we can go to them. Yes, it's a great point. We can go to God just like we can our earthly fathers. We're his children. And that's that's incredible in light of his holiness. And when you read all about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the, the distance that was required between man and God, and now it's fully accessible because it's Christ. I mean, it's amazing. So Christ's ascension placed him at the right hand of God where he now intercedes for us. Crank through these points here. Christ intercedes for us as a one-time sacrifice for our sin before a holy God. Christ intercedes for us when it comes to how we communicate with God. Christ intercedes for us when the devil tries to accuse us. This is a good point that's probably not thought of often as well, right? The devil is the great accuser. He makes accusations. He wants you to believe all these things, these lies. And Christ intercedes for us when this happens. He's our protector because he tells us the truth. Right? We, we know what the truth is. And Christ intercedes for us when we seek comfort. And this is a great reminder when we struggle with our sin daily. There's comfort to be found in Jesus. Paul Washer here says, the believer is painfully aware of his many weaknesses and oft-repeated failures. Amen. These would leave him downcast and without hope if he did not have a merciful high priest in heaven who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. So our summary here is from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 on Christ's ascension. Since, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, I think it was John Calvin that said sin boldly. I didn't spurt I don't remember. One of the, the, the great old dead guys. Uh, sin boldly. And what he meant by that was don't hide your sin from God. Confess it in boldness. In boldness, boldness knowing that Jesus died for that. And you were forgiven. So therefore, you can confess it freely to God. And that always stuck with me because, you know, our, we want to hide it, right? It's, it's hard to, to pray to, to God and say, hey, here's what I did. And he knows. But when it comes out of our lips, it, it's just, it's interesting how we want to hide, right? That's our, that's our natural inclination. But sin boldly. And this is why. Because we have a great high priest. There's nothing that he can't forgive. All right, moving along. Final point, the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ and our response. 
Okay. We just went through a lot of detail last week and this week in regards to this good news about Christ, right? It's a scandalous and powerful message that is to be shared with all of humanity. It's a message about a holy God who created humans for his pleasure so that they could dwell with him and worship him. But instead of worshiping him, they worship what? They worship themselves. They worship the creation instead. So instead of worshiping their creator, they rebel against him. Therefore bringing sin nature into humanity. And now humanity wants nothing to do with God. So man now stands naturally separate from God, right? They're not able to stand in his holy presence because of their sin, nor would they even want to because they are spiritually dead inside and all they want is themselves. And since this rebellion breaks God's holy laws and commandments, justice is required. It can't be overlooked. So God will judge all who sin against him with fair and righteous judgment. And as a result, the punishment for even one sin against the very holy God is what? Is death, right? This means eternal separation from God where man is forever removed from God's blessing and will instead receive God's wrath forever in hell. But God, while man was enslaved in their sin with no hope, in his great grace and mercy, he sent his one and only son as a sacrifice to redeem and rescue a people for himself. And Jesus is the only one who can do this, who can save men, because he came to earth, God in the flesh, taking the form of a human in order to represent them and to take full responsibility of the sins that they committed against God. So Jesus goes to the cross as a sacrifice for sin, to suffer and die for the sins on behalf of man, taking God's full wrath upon himself. So he traded places with men. He took on their sin as a punishment. He exchanged it for his perfect righteousness, his perfect law-keeping that he was able to do while on earth. And God's wrath against sin was so vicious that Jesus had to die on that cross. And he was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead, signifying that God's righteous anger and justice towards sin was fully appeased and satisfied. So now Christ has defeated the curse of sin and death and is forever sitting at the right hand of the Father as mediator and great high priest for anyone who places faith in him. And now since Christ intercedes on your behalf, you will be fully restored to a right relationship with the Holy Father and no longer be his enemy. You will be restored from once being spiritually dead to now being spiritually alive where you can seek after righteousness. And you are no longer enslaved to your sin. And see, outside of Jesus Christ, there is no hope. You have no hope. You will never be able to save yourself based on anything you do. Whether your grandfather was a Christian, whether you said a prayer, you cannot save yourself. But Jesus can save you based on what he has done. It's Christ's works that can save you. Give your life to him so that you may live. This is the good news, right? This is the, the powerful message of the gospel. So it's not just a story to be told. It demands a response. With what I just shared, if all we did was go, <laughs> great story, Dave. Man, 
They should make a movie about someone who gives their life for someone else. That'd be a great plot. <laughs> Interesting how almost every movie out there has that plot that shares the gospel message, right? But this demands a response. For every single person who hears the gospel, in that moment, they need to decide. Are you going to follow Christ? Or are you going to reject it? This is not an optional thing. There's no in-between. There's no, no, yeah, no, I, I believe in this. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad you died for me, but I'm going to kind of do my thing over here. And we're good because you're a loving God. There is none. The gospel is the gospel. And it's either embraced or it's rejected. And this is the good news that the cultural Christian most likely has never heard. Or maybe doesn't understand. Right? There's still elements of the gospel in my first five years of being a Christian that I was still trying to wrap my head around. New things that I was being told that I was like, oh, <laughs> wow. And it made me see God bigger. And it made me want to, to, to kill my sin even more. It made me want to hate my sin even more. So... Like a coin that has two sides, the gospel is a clear message of both life, but also of death. There is no in-between. Life through giving your life to Jesus, or death by living life for yourself. Someone has to take the wrath of God, right? And this is what the cultural Christian must know. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ, but it is also a warning to its listeners when it is told. It comes as a warning, and it demands a response. And we know that is not the good news on the right, right? <laughs> Everything we went through these last couple weeks, that is the good news. And we want to make sure that we, we convey this clear message to our friends, family, coworkers, people who don't understand this and may not be seeing it clearly. So I hope that in these last couple weeks, just this teaching on the gospel's message um, is a good refresher for you and maybe there's a couple points that you know specifically man I need to I want to talk about these ones with so and so right finding that common ground finding a good starting point regarding uh, it demanding a response I have this last quote I want to end on I think I have yeah right there. it's on your notes too many accept Christ the way one accepts say a root canal although I don't know how many people accept a root canal. Many accept Christ the way one accepts, say, a root canal. Grasping the gospel, though, entails embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior and treasure. What this means, among other things, is that Jesus Christ is infinitely more than a get-out-of-hell-free pass. He's a living person to follow, worship, cherish, and enjoy. Knowing him is the only way to be restored to a right relationship with the God for whom we were made. Through him, we can experience the joy of forgiveness, the help of the Holy Spirit, and the hope of the world to come. No person is saved by getting baptized, going to church, reposting Christian sentiments, praying a prayer, signing a card, walking an aisle, or throwing a pine cone into the fire at summer camp. The critical question facing each of us blows right past everything outward. For it's laser aimed at the heart. Are you, right now, relying on Jesus alone for your standing before God? The gospel demands a response. Now is the day of salvation, Paul insists. In sharing our faith, let's urge people to respond to the claims of Christ, bringing them to that eternally momentous point of decision. 
This is the greatest story ever told, and anybody can get in on it. Oh, you meant to that. Um, we'll wrap this up here for this morning. Thank you for coming to these, by the way. I hope that they've been edifying for you. Um, next week, we're going to jump into the gospel calling and conversion. And then uh, the week after, I think you can spend one week on that. And then the week after, we'll, we'll end on the last part of assurance and mornings. And then uh, Kevin's going to be doing a, a teaching on just tools and ways we can engage cultural Christians. It'll be kind of our last teaching lesson. It's a great one to end on. And then we'll have one week where we can just do testimonials. I'd love to hear from you guys of through the last couple months of these lessons, if there was any opportunities that came your way or just any new things you learned. Um, so that's kind of what the layout will look like. A uh, little spoiler alert, our next series that will take us through May is I'm really excited for. We're going to be uh, doing a series called Defending the Gospel, and it's going to be on heresies. So every week will be a different historical heresy that will be taught by people other than me, so I'm very excited about that. Um, there, there are some talented individuals who are gifted in this church, and they'll have a chance to, to help teach and do some research. But it's going to be a series on heresies, what the heresy is, how did it start, and also how do we see it today. So I'm really excited for the next series, too, and that will start in March. So let me pray, and we'll get out of here. Uh, Father, we, we thank you for these truths of the gospel. We thank you for Christ. Thank you for everything that he is. Lord, and just a reminder that we need that it's not about us. And to embrace the fact that we don't have control, to embrace the fact that if you had not acted, if you had not created a covenant, we'd be dead in our sins. And that's a scary thought to think that we have nothing to do with your plan of salvation for us. And, and that is humbling. And Lord, I just pray that we would worship you in that truth alone this morning. We would praise you for rescuing us. We praise you for saving us. Knowing that as we stand today, we are justified, we are redeemed. And we're going to be with you for an eternity because of your great love and grace. What a beautiful message. I pray that this would sink deep into the hearts of my brothers and sisters here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.